All right, well, good morning. Uh, great to be with you this morning. If you uh, have a Bible, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? We've been uh, looking at the book of Hebrews uh, since the fall, and we're going to continue um, through Advent right up to Christmas um, this series in the book of Hebrews. It might not be the most kind of traditional Christmassy um, you know, place in the Bible to, to be uh, as we approach Christmas, but it's, um, it's all about Jesus, right? So um, we're just going to go with it. So if you would, um, stand with me, and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Let's read God's Word together. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, would you uh, encourage us God, we, uh, we come uh, tired, we come to you uh, reluctantly. God, we come um, maybe eagerly or desperately just hoping for good news. God, would we hear good news from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So I want you to imagine that um, you're a a child, that you're maybe eight or ten years old, and uh, your family has spent the day getting the house ready for Christmas. You've put up the Christmas lights, you've got out the decorations, the tree is finally up, and just as you're about to, you know, it's bedtime, and as, just as you're about to head towards bed, you see under the tree the first Christmas present. It's wrapped, and there's a bow on it, and so you kind of sneak over and take a look at the tag before you go up to bed, and you're so excited because it's got your name on the tag, and you're thinking about what you've asked for for Christmas, and it seems like maybe it's the right size, and you pick it up, and it feels good and substantial. It feels, you know, the, the weight is right. And you begin to think, yes, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. And you're filled with excitement and you're eager, but there's a problem. It's only December 1st. And so it's still four weeks, four long, frustrating, agonizing weeks before you can open that present. <clears throat> it feels so close and yet it feels so far away. Today is the first Sunday in Advent, and I think that that 
imagination or maybe it's more like a memory for some of us uh, it captures like maybe just in a thumbnail snapshot way what the season of Advent is all about there is this sense of of anticipation, of eagerness. I mean, we, we see this in our culture that, um, like I said earlier, we cannot just, uh, we have to prepare for Christmas. And so we have all this, this season of preparation of, of lights and Christmas shopping and um, buying all the things we need for Christmas dinner. And uh, there's all this buildup before Christmas. And that's part of Advent. And um, somehow we seem to know instinctively that we have to prepare for Christmas. And yet, uh, there is also, um, well, hold that for a sec. We also, we also know with certainty that we, we won't be preparing forever, do we? We know that December 25th will actually come. That Christmas will actually arrive. And the big day will finally dawn and we will celebrate. And that's why one of the key themes of Advent, this season of preparation, is hope. Um, like the reads just read in our Advent reading, uh, the, the idea of hope. But the idea of hope, to, to really understand what, what we're talking about when the Bible talks about hope, we've got to pause because uh, we use the word hope in a way that is totally different than the way the Bible uses the word hope. Um, you know, I always think of hope the way that, you know, 21st century Westerners use hope. It was like when I was in high school. You know, I'm going into fourth period. I know there's a big exam. I haven't studied at all. I really hope it turns out okay. Um, just kidding, Mom. <laughs> that's how we think of hope. Uh, but that's not what hope in the Bible is like. Hope in the Bible is like the hope, uh, you're, not, you're not foolish you know, to wrap presents. Um, you're not foolish to um, buy a turkey. You're not foolish to prepare for Christmas because you know with certainty that December 25th will arrive. You could say it like this, the difference between, um, between our culture's view of hope and the Bible's view of hope is the difference between playing the lottery and waiting for an inheritance. Uh, you can play the lottery and hope that something happens, but we know it probably won't. But biblical hope is like having an inheritance. It's like having a wealthy father, and your name is in the will, and you don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And you don't know exactly when the inheritance is going to come to you. But you can count on the reality that it will one day arrive. You can live now in light of that future reality. That's what hope is like in the Bible. And so the purpose of Advent is not really to go back and kind of uh, uh, try to relive that first Christmas, try to... um, figure out how to, how to maintain like surprise and wonder when the angel appears to Mary and, um, and the original audience of the, of the birth of Jesus is um, shepherds. Uh, we don't have to try to like mentally get ourselves back into that because the idea of Advent is, um, l- the purpose of Advent is to use this season of preparation and hope to live not just for the month of December, to, but to live all of our lives um, in hope. To live now, not just in December, but all of our lives, with the sure hope that God will finish the work that he began in the birth of Jesus. The purpose of Advent is to train ourselves to live with hope. To live like we have a wealthy father who has promised us a generous inheritance. And here's why I think this is so important. 
I went to the mall yesterday with my kids. And um, so hopefully Jesus will come back soon. <laughs> um, but walking through the mall, uh, it just struck me that our culture seems to swing between hype and cynicism. I mean, those are like the two things that we experience, and nowhere to experience that more at the mall. Where on the one hand, it's like, Everybody is excited about everything. And aren't you excited about how excited we are all about the excitement? And it's so exciting. And why aren't you excited? Right? It's like glitter makeup. Who cares, right? Um, <laughs> and, okay, so there's that. But then there's this kind of like, um, we see how thin that is. And so we have this like overreaction, maybe this like, hipster, like everything's so ironic and nothing really lives up. Like we know it's like what cynicism is sort of prejudging that everything will end poorly. Um, so there's optimism, which is not biblical hope, which is it'll all work out. And then there's cynicism, which is it'll never work out. And hope is neither of those. But hope is living in the tension in between the two extremes. Um, and we need that, don't we? We need that because, I mean, just on the surface, we need that to get through Christmas. <laughs> um, to not give in to the hype or the cynicism um, of our culture. But I think if we go a little bit deeper, and we think about some of the realities that face us during the Christmas season, we have got to li- we've got to learn to live with hope. Um, think about some of the realities that we face Um, Some of us are preparing for Christmas and we're trying to figure out how we're going to get through this. Um, And yet we know, like, financially, we are just barely hanging on, aren't we? Or um, some of us are going into Christmas and you're sort of stealing yourself to spend holidays with a family that doesn't really understand the pain that they've caused you. Or some of us are um, going into Christmas preparing to get these family photos from all of our friends. And we're still single. We're still single again. And so Advent shows us that there's a better option than hype or cynicism because Advent trains us to live with hope. And gosh, I'm feeling so emotional this morning, but it's just struck me in the last week or so as I've been preparing this that Advent hope is really the only way to live with realism about the world that we live in and not to send into cynicism. I saw this quote. Fleming Rutledge um, published a a book on Advent, um, and uh, I came across this quote from the book this week. It says this, The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in the present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In the Advent tension, in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. That is, I think, why we're here as a church. That is why, um, and doing that as a church, I think is the only reason that we can live, or the only way that we can live in the real world without giving in to hype, or cynicism. And so for Advent, we're just continuing through the book of Hebrews because um, in some ways, looking at chapter 10 makes it look like I planned this better than I did. 
because chapter 10 of Hebrews is really, I think, what um, living with hope looks like. I think, I think the author of Hebrews is telling us very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, this is what it actually looks like, really practically, to live with hope in this world. Living with hope is a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that is as surprising as a God who became a baby. It's choosing to live with hope that God is bringing a future that is surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. That is what Advent is calling us to. So look with us at what Hebrews 10 tells us, and I really am just going to kind of like walk through this passage and try to explain, help us understand what it really means. Um, and the first thing that you, that you see where we started this in, um, in verse 19, the first word is the word therefore. Therefore. Um, and I think that the key to living with hope in this world is to understand the meaning of the word therefore. And I hope this isn't overly simplistic. Um, you know, I've heard pastors say, it's kind of cute, cheesy phrase, you know, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? But think about what it means. The word therefore is connecting two thoughts. And it's saying that, that logically, this first thing that's true, therefore, will lead to the second outcome. Okay, that's what the word therefore implies. And uh, so, example, did you get this email about a thousand times in the last week? Everything is on sale, therefore, you should buy today. Okay, because this first thing is true, everything is on sale, therefore, it should lead to this behavior. And at chapter 10 of Hebrews, some people have said that the book of Hebrews is a little bit like a sermon. And he's in the last third, which means he's getting to the point in the sermon where he's applying it. He's saying, everything that has come up to this point is true. Therefore, this is what you should do. This is how you should live. Um, and so what he does in, chapter, uh, in verses 19 through 21... Um, listen, listen, as a, listen again as I'm going to read this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Okay. If you've been here uh, at all over the last, um, I guess, nine weeks, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, those words probably sound a little bit familiar to you at this point. It's like he's getting to this point where he's going to go for the application, and so he restates or re-summarizes. Uh, well, summarizes, don't want to re-summarize. But he summarizes what he said up until this point. Um, so over and over again, he's been making the point that Jesus is better than everyone and everything else. Um, and so he said that Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is not an imitation. He's not a knockoff. Jesus is uh, better than the law because he reveals the truth of God to us. Uh, Jesus is uh, better than the prophets because he actually is the word of God. He doesn't just tell us the word of God. Um, and he, he kind of highlights two things here. He says... That because of Jesus, we have access into the inner, the uh, the into the inner sanctum, into the into the holy of holies. He's saying that we have confidence to enter the throne room of God because of Jesus. And then he said what we've looked at, uh, at over the last couple of weeks that Jesus, this idea that Jesus is our great priest. Jesus is is at home on the both sides of the Gulf. He is fully human and fully divine, and therefore he can bridge that divide between us and God. 
himself. And that's what he's saying. He's summarizing all the reasons that he's given up to this point. And he's saying, because all of this is true, therefore, it should affect the way that we live our lives. It has to affect the way that we live our lives. And this, I think we just have to pause right here and say, this is the crucial difference between Christianity and every other religion. The, the, the nature of religion is to say, if you do these things, if you behave like this, if you obey, then God will choose you, accept you, bless you. And Christianity uniquely says, because these things are true, because God has broken into the world, because he has come to make himself known, because Jesus has come to reconcile you to God, therefore, obey. The order is crucial. Um, we've been talking in our family about what it means to know something. We have lots of arguments about things that we know. Like, I already know that, Dad. <laughs> something that is said to me frequently. So, for example, one of my children, they'll look at them, who was spending the night at the grandparents' house last night, and we're trying to get out the door, and we're trying to... Uh, get them packed and I'm saying could you please go you have to get you know pajamas and clothes for the morning and get them in a bag and he says I know dad and I'm like then why aren't the clothes in the bag it's like I dad I know I'm like but if you knew it then the behavior would reflect it and so we think that we know something because we've heard it or maybe we think we know it if we can repeat it back to somebody. But I was listening to this podcast this week. It was talking about education theory says that there are like five stages of learning something. And it's not until stage four that, you actually, uh, that it actually affects your behavior. The first step is just awareness. Like, I know that I should be getting clothes in my bag, but I'm not doing that yet. It hasn't reached stage four yet. Um, If we know something, it'll affect our behavior. Um, you know, when I, when, I, when I fell in love with Ashley, like, it affected my life. It affected the way I spent my time, the way I spent my money. It affected the way that I lived. And I wonder if for many of us, uh, we believe in God. We believe that there is a God. Um, we've been in church. We know the story. We know the Christmas stories. But we know them in kind of that first level way, in a way that hasn't really begun to affect our behavior. We know who God is, but we know it in a way that the therefore isn't fully functioning. And I gotta, I gotta say this, I've been struggling with this, really, really struggling with this over the last couple months as I've... <laughs> I, I'm really struggling to like, I don't really want to turn a sermon into the Bryce's personal therapy session, but <laughs> the last couple months have been really hard in the life of our church, and it's affected me dramatically, and I've just been riddled with anxiety, and um, being a pastor is hard work, you know, and, and, and um, I, I know the right answers, I know like the right answers, um, to you know, uh, my anxiety, but I'm still scared. <laughs> I'm still scared. And so, what do you do? Well, people tell you the right answers, and it's like, would you just stop? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
about what do you do, our tendency is to work harder, try harder, but if we say that we believe certain things about God and is is it affecting the way that we live our lives, the solution isn't to try harder to get our behavior to line up. The solution is to go back to those foundational truths, to be reminded about who God is and what he has done and what he has done for us. And when I'm afraid that God's goodness is about to run out on me, the thing that has been helpful for me is to be reminded that this isn't the first time the second time or the tenth time that I've been afraid uh, that God's goodness is about to run out. And you know what? God has been faithful every single time. And so why is, why is he like now, yeah, I was, I was faithful 77 times, but now I'm done. This, you know, I'm out of patience for you, Bryce. God has been faithful every single time. Living with hope doesn't mean just hoping that it'll all work out, I guess, I hope. Hoping is knowing that my future is secure because of God's action in the past. That's why Christmas is so beautiful, because it's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's a historical act. Something happened in history. God is broken into the world. God's faithfulness in the past motivates hope for the future. Do you feel rushed and busy when you think about all you have to do between now and Christmas? Everything you have to buy, how many times you're going to have to go to the mall, back to Amazon. Uh, Do you feel rushed? Do you feel hectic? Do you feel chaotic? You need to come back to the Christmas story and remember that God came into the world to bring you peace. Do you uh, feel anxious about getting or giving the perfect gift? You need to come back to the Christmas story that tells us that the author of life and the true source of love has come into the world to give himself as a gift to you. You cannot just like muscle your anxiety away. You cannot muscle yourself into behavior. Okay. Are you living in light of the therefore? That's the first thing. Uh, the gospel is such good news that it affects every single thing about our lives. God has acted in history. It's a historical fact. It's a historical fact. That's why I love the way that the gospels tell the story of the birth of Jesus. It, you know, in the, in, the, uh, in the year of the census, when Quirinius was governor, you know, like, who the heck is Quirinius? The people that knew, right? It's a historical act. It's not about Bilbo going to Rivendale or whatever. God has acted in history, therefore we can live with hope. Secondly, what does that look like? Okay, how does the therefore actually affect our lives? What, what should our lives look like? Um, well, he tells us, Verses 19 through 21, he says, Since this is true, therefore, uh, verse 22 and following, um, verses 22 22 through 25, he lists four things that we should do. uh, Four ways 
that the truth of the gospel affects the way that we should live our lives. And it's, it's interesting, I think. There, there are two things he says about the way that we should respond to God kind of individually, and two things he says about the way that we have to be embedded in the community of the church if we're really um, to understand, uh, if we're really to kind of live that therefore out, if we're really to live with hope. And so verse 22, first thing he says, these four things, four, way, four, things our, four ways our lives should look. Verse 22, he says, uh, let us draw near. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? All of this is therefore, this is true. So therefore, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying is because Jesus... Uh, because Jesus has come, we have access to God himself. We have access into the throne room of God, into the, the inner ring of reality. And you can enter into the presence of God with confidence and with a clear conscience. Uh, you know, it's really common, this idea in our culture that, um, you know, if I was to meet God, I would have a few issues to bring up with him. Um, no, <laughs> I, I don't want to minimize the reality that like, there's real pain and suffering that we struggle with. But there's a reason why the angel Gabriel, you know, we talk about angels at Christmas time and they're beautiful or cute. But the first thing the angel always says is, do not be afraid. Why does he say that? Because it's because when angels show up, uh, angels come from the presence of God and they convey some of the holiness of God. And, and if we find ourselves in the in the presence of, a, of an angel, we're terrified. We're undone. And the first thing the angels say is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And what Hebrews is saying is, you can have confidence. You can have a clean conscience because Jesus has made you clean. He's made you clean. You don't have to defend yourself to God, to other people. You can have a clean conscience because of Jesus. Um, the second thing he says in verse 23 is, uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, he's kind of said the same thing, author, in different ways. He said, do not drift. He said, set your anchor in Christ. He said, do, uh, and he's, here he's saying again, hold fast, hang on to your confession. The original church, I guess, the original hearers of the uh, the book of Hebrews, we've said, I've said this, they're, they're just like us. They're people who have, I mean, they're interested in Jesus. They showed some initial enthusiasm for Jesus, but life is hard, and God seems to be taking longer than we wanted him to, to do whatever it is that we wanted him to do, and following Jesus is costly and things get difficult and so they're tempted to bail. Maybe not bail like we think we need something else. Yeah, like Jesus is great, but I need something else to be happy, to be satisfied in life. The author has said over and over again, don't give up on Jesus. But, but the way he says that I think is so profound because what that looks like is a slow drift. Um, I've, I've never seen somebody go to bed as a committed Christian and wake up as an atheist the next morning. 
And it, it's easy for us to think, like, I would never give up on Jesus. But it, it doesn't look like a complete 180. It's just a slow drift. And if you want to drift away from Jesus, all you have to do is nothing, because that is what will inevitably happen. I mean, think about this reality. We live in a culture, in a world that just bombards us with messages, right, about who we are and how we gain our value. Uh, We live in a world that says you're only as valuable as your most recent failure. Your worth is what you do, whether you're a parent, whether, you know, you're employed. Your worth is in what you do, and it's not true. That is not true. But we are told that 24-7. And so if we are not actively counteracting that message, if we are not finding ways to be shaped to kind of counteract the message that our culture tells us, you just will drift. (laughs) You will drift. And so what are you doing to hold fast your confession? What are you doing to ensure that you are shaped by into the image of Jesus? What are you doing to ensure that, that your kids are being shaped and molded into the image of Jesus? not into the image of our world. I I mean, let me just give you one simple idea. You know, the Gospel of Luke. There are 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. So if you started on December 1st, which is yesterday, but you could catch up, and read one chapter a day for 24 days, you will wake up on Christmas morning having just read the life story of Jesus. And so you'll celebrate Christmas knowing why Jesus, Jesus came. If you don't have a Bible, there's blue Bibles all around the room here. Just take one. But you know what might even be more important than what you would learn from reading the Gospel of Luke over the next 24 days is just the practice of doing it as a family. I mean, think about how many things we are intentionally doing to prepare for Christmas. And if shaping ourselves and and our children to be people who love God and his word and are eager to read it isn't a part of our Christmas plan, then we shouldn't be surprised when we begin to slowly drift away. Um, The first two behaviors, the first two therefores talk about our behavior as individuals. But listen to the last two um, the last two things he says in verses 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Sorry, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What he's he's saying is that there's no way for us to live as Christians in this world without a deep connection to and involvement in the life of the church. Um, We've got to encourage one another. We've got to meet together. We've got to to stir each other up. Um, Now, let me say this. This is going to feel foreign to us because... Uh, We live in an individualistic culture that says your comfort, your good, your personal happiness is the highest ideal. And so you should resist anything that would inhibit your personal happiness. 
What the Bible is telling us is that to live with hope requires immersing yourself in a community that will require you to deny yourself at some point. To put the good of somebody else above your own comfort. This passage is telling us that unless we let Christian community interfere with our lives, we are falling short of God's ideal. And I know that sounds crazy, so let me just tell you an anecdote. <laughs> That's what we do when something's hard. It's like, let me tell you a story. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, I was looking at YouTube because I was procrastinating, and I saw, for some reason, this caught my attention, this video on what is the safest intersection in the world. I was like, I would love to know what the safest kind of intersection in the world is. You know what the best, safest kind of intersection in the world is? You've all driven through one on the way here this morning. It's a roundabout. But everybody hates roundabouts, right? But this video was fascinating because it, it was saying, and I've thought this before, have you ever been like sitting, making a left, waiting to make a left turn lane on a, like Antonio, let's say out here, and people are flying past you the other direction at like 70 miles an hour and they're like four feet away from your car? And a little, like that is so dangerous, right? And this video is saying that the in, uh, roundabouts are the safest kind of intersection in the world because think about this, you can put up a sign on Antonio that says 25 miles an hour, but if there's four lanes each direction, well, I'm driving 80 or whatever, you know? I'm, but you can't take a roundabout faster than about 15, 18 miles an hour. And so it's because it's hard that it forces you to slow down and you have to go around there and so it's impossible to get into a head-on collision. So the, really the only sort of collision you can get is kind of a slow speed merge that'll you know, do body damage, but it won't kill anybody, right? Okay, so the point is this. It's not the best kind of intersection despite the fact that it's difficult. It's the best kind of intersection in the world because it's difficult. And that, I think, is the point of what this is saying about the church. I, like, it's not convenient. And we live in this world that says everything should be comfortable and convenient especially church, because shouldn't spirituality feel natural and organic? And so when we look at church, we, we kind of go, well, yeah, like, I mean, for the people who are Christians, you know, we say, yeah, like, I want to be involved in a church, and that's the church I'm involved in, as long as I'm, you know, in town, I'm not on vacation, and nothing else is getting in the way, and um, as long as I like the music, and as long as the sermons are a little bit funny and kind of convicting, but not seriously convicting and not too long, like, what are we saying? Like, as long as it works for me, I'm in. But, you know, like, let's not take things too, you know, overboard here. But church is inconvenient. And what I want you to hear is, like, that's the point. The reason that we need the church is because it's inconvenient. Let us not give up meeting together. Now, you could read that in English and completely misunderstand and be like, yeah, I got, I got like, I meet with Christian, I can meet with, meet with my, my Christian friends all the time. Like, I got Christian neighbors, and we pray for each other, and I'm on this online community, and it's great, and like, those things are great. They're, those things are wonderful, but that's not what this is saying here. Um, the, the original language, the, the Greek here, um, the word for meeting together um, is the Greek word for synagogue. It means a gathering or an assembly. It's talking about not for, it's talking about the church as we gather weekly for worship. 
It's saying don't forsake assembling together, meeting together um, as a church. Why? Well, think about it. Um, think about the, just the reality for us in, in, in the world that we live in. It, it's like a church is the first thing we drop when life is busy or difficult or stressful or, or out of town. And the Bible would tell us that we never experience true community as long as we experience it on our own terms. Like as long as I'm going into church going, do I like the music of that church? Do I, do I like the, you know, whatever. <laughs> like we're not, That's not actually true community. Because church isn't convenient, and that's the point. Because what happens in the church is that young and old, um, people from various social, racial, socioeconomic backgrounds um, have to get along. And that's the point. <laughs> is that in the church, in, in community, uh, in the community of the church, that we actually learn how to relate to people that we would never relate to if it weren't for the gospel. And the gospel takes on flesh as we, as we work those things out. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy. That's the point. It's not better despite being difficult. It's better because it's difficult. And so living by hope, invo- living by hope involves committing regularly to the deep involvement in the life of a local church. Okay, but l- let me be clear. This is not simply saying um, go to church every week. Uh, because notice it's saying, but you've also got to, we can't forsake giving up meeting together, but it also says let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it says let us encourage one another. And you're here, but you're not encouraging or spurring anybody on right now. So there's this sense that I think the Bible holds out this model, and, and Christians for thousands of years have said this, that that the church gathers and the church disperses. And in the life of the church, we, we meet for worship on Sundays, and then, but we still are the church as we, as we disperse into the rest of our lives. And so it's in the, it's in the rest of the week uh, we're, that we're still the church. And so living by hope means worship, but it means more than that. Um, it, it says in the ESV, which I read, it says stir one another up. A, a lot of translations uh, translate it, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it, it's this idea of, like, I mean, think about a spur, like a cowboy spurring a horse in the rib. Like, that doesn't seem comfortable. Saying so you've got to have this sense of, like, holy provocation towards one another, like holy annoyance. Um, uh, you've got to ho- annoy each other in a holy way. What does that mean? It means you've got to correct each other. We've got to call each other out in love. We've got to uh, correct one another. Uh, Maybe it means this. We have to give people permission to correct us. Um, I hate this. Like, I love doing it, unfortunately. (laughs) But I need this. And I hate it. And there have been... uh, I mean, my reality is this. I am a professional talker. Like, I, I talk all the time. I can't stop talking now. And so I say dumb things sometimes. And I need people to come and like, correct me. Right? Or I say something that's true, but I need... Like a couple weeks ago, somebody came to me and said, like, you said this, and, and I'm sure this is what you meant, but this is how it felt to me. And it, I hate that, but I need it. And I, I kind of love it. I need it. You need it, too. We need to... We need to... Um, we need to, incur, uh, we need to provoke one another. 
in a, in a good and holy way. But we also need to encourage each other. Um, we, need, we need to affirm one another. We need to call out the good that we see in one another because life is hard and we can't do this on our own. And um, I think we all have a, a natural inclination towards like spurring or encouraging, right? And some of you are like really encouragers and you're, you're wonderful and I love you. And some of you are like me and we like to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, right? Like, come on, people, let's get going here. Um, but we have to do both. And the evidence that, the, that we're actually beginning to live the therefore, that the truth of the gospel is doing its work in our lives, is that we become people who both spur and encourage. Uh, one of the things that, as I've mentioned over the last couple months, have been just hard for me, but one of the things that I, I, I've just kind of come to embrace this as this season of God working in me and not maybe producing as much fruit through me as I would want to see, but, but pruning me and working in me. And one of the, oh gosh, it's been painful, but one of the blessings has been, I've just seen in myself this like, desire to be encouraging, which I have um, never really experienced. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, but mostly I'm just trying to fake it or something. But like, there's just this, this desire to encourage my wife and my kids and to express my appreciation for our staff and for you as our church. And I love you, and I want you to know that because the gospel is at work in even me. <laughs> um, okay, let me finish. At Christmas, God broke into the world to tell you that he loves you. You can't earn that love. You cannot live up to it. But when you receive it and experience it, love will absolutely change you. It will change you into a person who does inconvenient things. That's what every Christmas movie is about. <laughs> it's about love of a person, love of family, motivating somebody to give up on a vacation in Paris to come home and find, you know, her son who was left home alone. <laughs> right? The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Do you want to move past the hype and beyond the cynicism? If so, then I want to invite you to live with Advent hope this Christmas. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you didn't stay away from us. But I thank you that our love came down. You made yourself known to us. You didn't remain far away, hidden behind the clouds and the galaxies. But that Jesus, who is the image of the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, became a man, became a baby, in order to, um, in order to give us hope. And so I pray this Christmas that our lives would be characterized 
not just by the hurry and rush of all of the just fun and joy that this season offers to us, but that we would also be willing to live uh, in the tension, that we would embrace uh, the tension of knowing that this world is not the way that it should be, and you will one day make it right. Would you help us to live with that hope this Advent season, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.